We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. Welcome to the secret life of cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, everybody. On the show today, Bosco and I are joined by the current Westchester District Attorney, Mimi Roca. And in that way that things tend to go here on the podcast, our conversation ranged from very serious and important to the totally unserious and, well, let's just say important in a different way. And while we didn't bake together, we do discuss the finer points of cookies. On my Substack, you can also find a brand new recipe for a peach and mango pie with ginger streusel. It's quite delicious. It's also quite easy to make. So any of you pie-phobes out there, I encourage you to give it a try. The recipe can be found at marissarothkopf.substack.com, along with a huge, giant, enormous archive of recipes and stories of American kitchen history. There you can also support my work with a subscription for $5 a month, or if that's not possible for you, you can subscribe for free. And don't forget to join Deep State Radio as a member for special perks. Either way, and every day, I am grateful for your support. Now, here's to my conversation with Mimi. Hello, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. We are joined today by my dog, Bosco, who's shaking his head a lot because he has a nasty, um, itchy ears. And more importantly, we are joined by Westchester District Attorney Mimi Roca, former federal prosecutor and um, legal mind, great genius, and now, as I said, um, District Attorney for the Great County of Westchester in New York State. So thank you so much for being here on this sunny afternoon. Thank you, Marissa. It's great to be with you. Um, and I'm joined by my dog, Ace, who is lying at my side quietly for the moment. We'll see if he stays there, but uh, dogs are welcome. Cats too. I'm sure. Yeah. The funny part is when the cats sort of walk across the screen and I'm baking something and I think people get the wrong idea that maybe my house is not hygienic. Um, anyway, <laughs> very, very clean. Lots of Clorox. Anyway, um, I wanted to, there's a lot to talk about, a lot of very important things to talk about. I wanted to talk about a, a study, though, um, which is important, but I think it almost makes me laugh. It just came out. It shows that, and you might want to be seated for this, um, it shows that women over the age of 40 um, who work are often, um, well, this might be shocking, so I'm glad you're sitting down. Are tr- 
not treated the same as men in their 40s and 50s who are seen as their peak and in their prime, but somehow women in their 40s and 50s are seen as either, it's like two extremes, distracted by children or, of course, burdened by menopause. Um, mm. So that they well, This is all uh, shocking to hear. <laughs> so uh, you've not experienced anything like that in your, or ever seen anything like that in your career? Uh, I definitely, you know, look, I, it's funny, not funny. I mean, this is a serious topic and a real issue, but I think what's interesting is if you talk about a woman at any stage of her career, there's something, some stereotype that applies that's usually negative. And I think that's the problem, right? Is that what, you know, first we're too young and we're, you know, inexperienced. And I've come up across that, not that I'm so young, I'm 53, but, or almost 53, but young for some of the things that I've done. Like when I ran for DA, it was, you know, yes, yes, little girl, nice, you know, nice try, but wait your turn. Yeah. Pat you on the head. Um, then, you know, all of a sudden you may be too old or yes, burdened by children or all those things. And so it's the, it's the constant sort of generalizing about us and, st and stereotyping, I think that is problematic. And actually, you know, there was something in the news recently that really reminded me of all of this. And, and I thought about it um, in sort of, you know, the like globe, like national um, level, the former, now former police commissioner of New York, the, New the NYPD, Keishan Sewell, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, um, but she, you know, resigned um, after only about 18 months mm -hmm. and didn't really say why exactly. But then people went back and there was this speech she had given in December. I'm sure you saw this. And she talked about how she was being, you know, sort of questioned at every turn and she wasn't allowed to have decision making authority. Um, it was really quite critical and I think deserved more attention than it got. Um, in terms of what that means of how the police department is being run there, but you know, not not my job to to publicize or or see if people are interested in talking about it. But I was really struck by her um, how universal her message was about how a woman in a very powerful position who was loved by the people she was leading clearly extremely competent in her job. I mean, beyond competent right. um, and doing an otherwise terrific job. But, you know, one, she felt she had to step down because she didn't have that. It all just really resonated with me in a, in a lot of different ways, frankly. Absolutely. So. I think you, you, I think you condensed it perfectly by saying at every stage along the way, um, we are seen in some negative light and yep. it's, or there's, and, and it's not like, Oh, look how young she is and how flexible her mind is. Or look at in middle age, she's so capable of multitasking. It's genius. And the way that she's able to handle many diverse opinions, all these experiences I've gained in my life are, you know, not seen as in quite the same light as I hoped they would be. Whereas yeah. if I were grizzled and gray and manly, you know, a little <laughs> tuft of gray <laughs> hair, I'd be, I'd be considered wise. It, we we used to we used uh, we used to play a game, not a game, but it was used to be a discussion that my parents would have. You know, there's a lot of wordplay in my house, and we would talk about all the negative words for women that there are as they age, 
and how many there are for men. And I, I, we don't have to go into it right now, but I challenge you, probably not as you're falling asleep, but maybe while you're in the shower, long car trips, try and come up with all the negative words for old men and all the negative old words for words for old women. Yeah, that's true. Definitely true. true. But um, you, um, let's turn actually to the positive, which you as a human being, female or not, but just as a human being are doing some wonderful things as DA in Westchester, but you come from being, and this is for, you know, this is not just a New York based podcast. So I want to talk to everyone around the globe who listens and say, what made you change from being a former federal pot or from being a federal prosecutor to want to switch and become something much more localized and DA for Westchester County? So, I mean, you know, I think that the short answer to that is about just having a different kind of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think as we're younger, <laughs> when I was younger, you tend to think very big um, and not that we shouldn't. But at some point after having been a federal prosecutor and worked in this office that did have this, you know, national impact, not I'm not talking about me alone, but the whole entire office, the Department of Justice. Um, And then even having after that, you know, done TV and and legal analysis and sort of had this national platform. And in some ways, the idea of having an impact at at a level, you know, in the community where I live and am raising my family um, and something that could feel a little more tangible where I could, you know, at, at the end of a year say, okay, this is what we did. This is what we accomplished. This is what we changed. So that, that's sort of a big part of it. I mean, this is an office I, as a federal prosecutor had worked a lot with the state prosecutor offices, mm-hmm. um, including the one that I now lead. And so, you know, I had a window into how much of an impact in particular a DA's office has both with victims who I have a special connection to, which I'll talk about in a second. um, And also in terms of, you know, just really trying to build trust with the community, which um, not that you can't do that at the federal level, but it's, it's definitely um, more tangible and something that, that I think you can see and feel and, and, uh, kind of touch more at, at the local level. Um, and that's really been, you know, something that I've really been trying to do. Um, unfortunately, my family has been victimized by violent crime twice, um, which really is what sort of gives me this, um, I, I'm not sure exactly what the word is, but, you know, uh, priority of, of uh, how we treat victims and crime victims. My mom, I've talked about this publicly before, my mom was a victim of a violent rape when she was a medical student, actually, in the 1950s. And she went to medical school at a time when, you know, women did not. She was one of 11 women out of like 300 in her class. And um, she was raped in the parking lot of her medical school in Chicago. And, you know, I grew up talking to her about that and hearing about it. And what always struck me was not just obviously the impact and the trauma of the rape itself, 
Um, she literally had to leave the city, you know, to, to get away from it for a while. Um, but the fact that at that time, you know, the police, the prosecutor, nobody treated this like a real crime. I mean, it just wasn't. And so nobody did very much. At least that was her perception and her feeling. And that re-traumatized her. And that, that really stuck with me. Um, and then later, unfortunately, and that that's really was a big motivation for me to become a prosecutor in the first place. Later, when I already was a federal prosecutor um, and actually uh, heading up our uh, White Plains office of the Southern District of New York, my parents in Chicago, they were in their 80s, living in the house where I'd grown up. Um, so they'd lived for like 40 years, um, you know, was there someone broke into their home in the middle of the night, um, targeted them because they were elderly, you know, we later found out um, and ended up hitting my dad over the head with a baseball bat. Um, he physically ended up being okay. I mean, there was a lot of, wasn't clear he was going to be okay, but he physically was. Um, and this person, um, did also sexually assault my mother, um, you know, in her eighties and, you know, they were traumatized. Obviously I can still remember getting the phone call the next, well, sort of in the middle of the night, I flew out there to me, this house, you know, that had been my childhood home was haunted. Um, they had to move out of the, out of the house, um, and I lived, you know, here I was this big, powerful federal prosecutor, but I was living through this with them. And I thought I had understood what it felt like to be a victim because I had met with many victims in my life, crime victims as a prosecutor. But you don't really until you're in those shoes and you feel so helpless. And I realized how unbelievably important it was to have a prosecutor on the other end of the call who really got it and really cared about my parents and cared about whether they had to testify or not. And, you know, was keeping us in the loop and all those things. And so that's been something that I carried with me even more. And the first day that I took office as district attorney, one of the, you know, there's very few things you can do with the wave of a pen. But um, one of the things I was able to do was to say to my office, I want every family, every crime victim and every family to be contacted by this office within 24 to 48 hours after the incident occurs. That's, that probably doesn't sound very revolutionary to you. No, it doesn't. Um, nor, nor should it. Um, but believe it or not, that wasn't happening in large part because people were um, relying, um, understandably, on the police departments to do that. Because the way it works you know, at, at the local system is police would respond. And so they would have the initial contact and there's 42 police departments in Westchester. So, um, but I felt it was really important for people to hear right away from our office, whether it be the prosecutor, our victim services, um, somebody. And so that has been happening for the most part. And it's still one of the first questions I ask when I get an email about a particular, you know, a violent case, um, or, you know, have we reached out to the family? Have we reached out to the family? So, um, you know, that was also a big motivating factor for me because a lot of these cases that really do have very, um, not just victims, but victims in, in going through the absolute, you know, worst times of their life um, are cases at the state level and not, not the federal. Right. And um, I, my understanding is that the way, and we saw this in the E. Jean Carroll case, I mean, and I only use her case because it was the most um, 
po- most popular. And it was shown the most on television. We've had the most right. experience with it. But, you know, she's big and famous and was talking about it with Donald Trump. And even on that level, you saw that the way that victims of sexual uh, assault or or crimes are treated is like something out of the 1950s or before that. And, you know, are you able to affect change in some way as the DA? Um, where, Where is this going? You know, where can we go with this? Yeah, so I think at least in New York, but I, you know, actually think New York is probably pretty advanced progressive in this way. So I imagine this is this is not just a New York issue. Um, I think when it comes to victims of sex crimes in particular, mm-hmm. we we meaning the the criminal justice system is has the farthest to improve. Um And it's for a couple of reasons. You know, one is in every other crime, every other kind of crime, the victim of the crime can be the key witness. And you always want as a prosecutor, you know, in law enforcement, you want corroboration. Of course, you would never just rely on a single witness. But the witness's testimony, you know, he pointed a gun at me. Um, I was standing behind the counter in the bank and, you know, he came up to me and handed me a note and demanded you know, that I take open the safe, that would be your key witness and, 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 and evidence, right? And you would consider that, well, this is my evidence, how do I now corroborate that and support that a little bit? Whereas in a sex crime, it's much harder for even prosecutors, even the most well intentioned prosecutors, police officers, um, jurors, judges to think of the, the victim's testimony as the evidence. It's like, okay, well, she said this happened, but, or he, but, you know, it's most, I mean, the, the research, obviously the numbers are mostly, so, so that's one problem. Um, the other problem is, again, at least in New York, and I'm sure this is true elsewhere, a lot of our laws, both evidentiary laws and statutory laws are based on these very outdated assumptions about women that just, are not true anymore. And we know that. And I think if you ask someone, well, do you think women make up, you know, will, will, you know, have sex and then regret it the next day. And then, you know, say they were right. Do you think they do that regularly? Most rational people would say no. And yet we have laws that are in place and haven't, we haven't been able to change because of that assumption. So there's something in New York called the voluntary intoxication loophole, um, which is, you know, a, a rape case um, where a victim has consumed alcohol voluntarily, right? So if someone, you know, puts a, something in my drink or, um, you know, somehow, you know, forces me to, to become intoxicated, um, they, they, they can be held liable for rape if I'm so intoxicated, I can't consent. I'm not capable of consent. But if I get drunk myself and I'm so drunk that I can't consent, it's voluntary. So it's, you know, essentially my fault. And uh, we still, the, the prosecutor would still have to prove then lack of consent. So that's why it's called a voluntary intoxication loophole. And I will tell you without naming names that when I was, there was a, uh, Alessandra Biaggi, who was a state senator at the time, um, and some others were advocating for legislation to close this. And I was supporting her and I was making calls to other legislators in the New York State Senate. And there was a very progressive 
um, male senator who in the conversation with me said, well, what's to stop? You know, why isn't this just opening the floodgates? Someone has sex, they regret it. And the next day, you know, they get drunk, have sex. And the next day they say, well, I was raped. And I said, you know, that doesn't look at the numbers like that. We don't have tons of false rape reports like that. Mm -hmm. Do you know what it takes for someone to walk into a police station and say, hey, I was raped. Why don't you do a vaginal, you know, uh, rape kit on me (laughs) Um, and submit yourself in this humiliating, what feels humiliating, shouldn't, but often does. And it's that sort of she asked for it mentality um, or, or mistrust of women and their sexuality that I, I, I was shocked to have someone actually say that out loud to me. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but I think unfortunately it's still very much a part of our culture. And so, um, there, there are other examples. There's a law, not a law, but a, a, an evidentiary rule in New York that in order to get into evidence, um, the fact that someone disclosed, you know, a a sexual assault, right, which is often corroboration. So now, you know, you put on my friend who I told, you know, that this happened, it it has to be something that you did, quote, promptly and promptly the prompt outcry rule. So it doesn't come in to evidence that corroboration that I told someone unless I did it, you know, quite close in time. And yet, as E. Jean Carroll's case shows, as many other case shows, cases show, as we all know, like that's not how trauma works. I mean, often people repress it. They can't talk about it. It can take a very long time. So again, it's this outdated, I think, archaic um, kind of misogynistic <laughs> distrust of women that fuels this. And unfortunately, it's it's still really built into a lot of our laws and our system. Um, and so- And it benefits know, we- predatory it, it benefits predatory men as well. Like if you look yes. at cases like, you know, I, I've been watching the uh, documentary about the Duggars, right? And you see in the cases like where men are in charge of women and the way that they think, it you are seen, don't talk, don't tell me what you see. So of course you're going to repress all these feelings. Right, right. Exactly. And, you know, fortunately, the statute of limitations for rape cases, both civil and criminally, was changed. So to recognize, so I mean, there is, like, I don't want to be all negative, there's definitely been improvement and uh, movement on this that supports survivors bringing cases and, and we're making progress. But I, I think some of the less publicized aspects of it, the less talked about ones are still very much there. How do you, you, I mean, you also have to deal with police departments as well. And there's a whole culture or, you know, assumed culture of how the police are taught to deal with victims of sexual assault. One of the things that holds a lot of victims of sexual assault, male and female, from going to their police department. Um, it, you know, especially if it's like a, a male driven police department, you know, run police department and you're a guy. It must also yeah, be challenging. I mean, look, I'll tell you another little anecdote, which is when that horrible um, break-in happened to my parents, because I was a prosecutor, the police, you know, detective that was in charge of the case, I mean, they they talked to me a lot, you know. Um, they get, I mean, I certainly had a lot of access and was getting a lot, I mean, not improper information, right. but just they were responsive to me. 
And the detective said to me, let me ask you a question. You're a prosecutor. I can ask you this. Do you think your mom, you know, is making it up? Do you think maybe she's imagining it because she was raped before? And I, I, I like, I wanted to scream. I wanted to yell at him. Are you effing kid? You know, but I didn't because I knew that wasn't going to be helpful to my family, actually. And so I did what we often do is I just pushed it down and I said, as a prosecutor, I can tell you, no, I don't think so, because I've seen the trauma and this is very real and I know what she's going through and, you know, but I couldn't believe that he was asking that question. And he was, I mean, he did a great job on the case and he was otherwise, he wasn't a bad person. It's just, again, this sort of mistrust, distrust, and because it was a weird set of facts. So, um, I, you know, look, I think building that trust with the police departments are important. And it's not just sex crimes victims, right? Like we have, we run into this problem with people who are victims of wage theft, who mm-hmm. often um, don't have immigration status. And so they're afraid to come forward. And there, th- that underreporting of crimes is, is a problem in general if you, if there isn't trust in the police department. And I think it varies from department to department and community to community. Some departments are very good at building that. It's part, though, of why I really wanted to have my office reach out directly. Doesn't mean that I'm saying in every case a police department does something badly, but there's just another channel of communication. And we do have trained trauma therapists who really are excellent at this. It's also why I put in place a hotline. Um, that's a real hotline, you know, that people actually listen to and we actually respond to. And it's got many different, um, it's in like 10 different languages. Um, it's, it's recorded. So people leave a message, but they can leave a message about, uh, like a labor or wage theft. They can leave a message about domestic violence r- reporting, p- public corruption, law enforcement integrity. I mean, really, there's all these different sort of, areas that people aren't always going to want to just walk into a police department and say, Hey, I want to report this. So um, this gives them an option and it's, it's been really successful and we have trained investigators who listen to it. So that's kind of a small thing um, to do to help, help build that line of communication with the community. I think that's actually a quite a big thing to do Um, (laughs) because if you can have a place where you feel safe enough to leave, to talk about what you need to talk about, and especially if it doesn't have to be face to face, even especially if you're, yeah. you know, um, sounds like a very good plan. Do you, do you have a sense of, so these are the sort of things that you are facing in Westchester, but I don't doubt that there are problems that are happening across the country. Do you have a, some sense of these changes being uh, used uh, or uh, these changes happening in other district attorneys across the country? Is there some motion movement towards that or Mm -hmm. is it bit by bit? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it obviously varies more than at the federal level, really what state you're in, but even in um, some states, you know, that I think we wouldn't otherwise think it would happen. There are, I don't, I don't like the term, um, you know, progressive prosecutor. I I like, I like the term modern prosecutor um, because I very much think of myself as a prosecutor. I mean, my, my main job is to help keep people safe and to help, you know, investigate and prosecute crimes, especially violent crimes. But there's a whole other sort of proactive aspect to it that we're talking about in terms of community relationships, but also in terms of trying to keep people out of the criminal justice system altogether. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I always sort of joke, but not joke. I'd be thrilled if we never had any cases because we did such a good job at sort of the early stages and lower level, you know, addressing um, what I think are, are almost warning signs. You know, when someone's committing a series of low level crimes, often it means it's a, it's a cry for help. And, you know, that's not a DA's office problem to solve alone. But if we have these diversion programs in place that get people out of the criminal justice system and into a social services system, get them treatment for, you know, an addiction or um, a mental health problem, maybe that prevents them from becoming someone who, um, you know, unfortunately turns to committing some kind of violent crime. Uh, or, or ending up in prison themselves for, for a very long time. And so I've put a lot of resources and investment from our office into these um, kind of what, you know, early intervention. Like, so to me, it's like early childhood intervention. Right, right. You know, when we're looking, when we're looking at someone who's committing misdemeanors, let's, let's, let's intervene then. And that really has not been the pattern in the past. People waited until someone committed some, you know, violent crime. And then it was, oh, they need treatment. Um, and uh, not that that doesn't happen, but I think there's more we can do at the front end. And I, th I think that's a trend that I'm seeing, you know, not everywhere, but certainly that more proactive diversionary approach, the um, trauma-informed approach that we're talking about in terms of victims, um, the trying to build credibility uh, and trust with communities. But it's really it's really hard. I mean, especially the building trust part, you know, as a prosecutor, I'm not like another elected official, like a governor or a state, you know, who can say what I think it needs to be said. I am bound by all sorts of DA ethical rules and, you know, not prejudicing what happens in courtroom and all of that. And so sometimes you're really hamstrung, um, your hands are tied, you know, and uh, it's hard to not just be able to say what you want to say. And for me in particular, that's hard. <laughs> um, so what do you think are like the next big, what are the big things that you're working on right now that you hope to affect changes in, within your role as DA? Um, so I think, you know, continuing a lot of the things that, that we've been talking about, the sort of making the office even more victim-centered, um, working on these early intervention diversion programs, I, I do also very much believe in, you know, building up our, our approach to violent crime and guns in particular. And we're very proactive on guns and doing a lot of partnerships uh, now with the school and with communities, particularly on red flag laws, which is a whole other topic that we could talk about for half an hour. Um, and um, conviction integrity. I set up the first independent conviction integrity unit, and that's been um, something that really is is getting going, um, and I think is a really important part of um, an institution like this. Um, I'm also really focused on ethics reform, and somewhat a little bit outside of just the DA's office. But you know, I bring my DOJ um, background, and um, you know, as you you know, you know, up until like, let's say, oh, I don't know, 2016, 2017, um, you know, there was this real line between the Department of Justice and, and how that was used and elected officials, right? Like a U.S. attorney would not take a call from a, a president or, you know, a senator any, from an elected official about a case that was just forbidden. And there was that kind of culture of really apolitical, um, in my view um, and my experience, um, you know, keeping politics out of that 
uh, prosecutorial system, as I think it should be, because it's such a powerful, important um, uh, institution. Right. And I think in DA's offices, we really could use some of that. And so I put into place a lot of things myself, both in my campaign, you know, not taking donations from elected officials, not taking donations from police unions, not taking donations from defense attorneys with cases in front of me. Um, and then once in office, I said, I will not take calls from elected officials on uh, anything case related um, and things like that. But I have found that my own little sort of, you know, these are the rules I'm putting up. First of all, people don't know about them. It's hard to publicize them. And I think it needs to be something more formalized, at least in Westchester. Um, and my guess is that's probably true in other counties. Um, other states, but in Westchester, you know, like our board of legislators controls my budget and they're all elected officials. And, you know, I think there has to be a real separation there. So I'm, I'm sort of, that's my next thing that I'm looking at. Um, we're doing some research and I want to propose some real ethics reform for the county because that's one of the things I've found hardest about this job is to do this job as an ethical prosecutor to do it with integrity, to do it the way that I know how to be a prosecutor is really hard to do in a, in, in a county system in the way it's set up, at least this county. <laughs> right. And I, I think it's probably, um, we see it happening all across the country in different ways, people, legislators um, trying to get involved in um, the politics, but trying to turn legal um, decisions uh, political. Um, or trying to turn people, I don't know, even, golly, the Supreme Court, we see. And I think when it happens at that level, it's usually about, you know, a piece of legislation or or some kind of ban or something that people really see. I've seen it happen in much more subtle, kind of under the radar ways that people would shouldn't, wouldn't know about, um, you know, but I nonetheless find kind of shocking and, and need to try to address right um and for as a journalist it makes me wish that there were still more small town local and i'm not speaking necessarily for westchester but just in general the loss of the local newspaper has meant that there is much less of the a fourth estate um oversight a fifth estate I, oversight, I've right? I've done that many times since I've been in office. Even, you know, wow, if this happened in New York City, it would be on the front page of, you know, the Daily News or the Post. And in Westchester, you know, we haven't had that. Um, no, so. and we don't have it anywhere around here. I live in New Jersey. So that means that people can know that they can get away with less oversight. Uh, and by that, I don't mean DAs. I mean people who yeah. necessarily yeah. might have nefarious uh, thoughts, right? Or want to influence things that they, maybe they shouldn't. Um, it's yep. getting on to um, all sorts of other uh, dinner time. And um, I know my dog and also over my shoulder, you can see, well, you can't, my cat was there going, <laughs> hey, over here, you, you forgot me. And then they're like children who want to eat. Um, yeah. Typically on this uh, podcast, um, we bake together or at least briefly talk about food. And I have an important question and it's my kind of general. It's not going to be the most important question you're going to be asked today <laughs> or possibly even this month. So you have to forgive me for low-browing it here, but it is I'm a long favorite. <laughs> let's, let's just <laughs> dial it back just a little. It's summer. Um, 
do you have any personal feelings? Two questions. One is, and there's correct answer, oatmeal raisin cookies versus chocolate chip cookies. Oh, I'm going to give the answer that I don't think you're going to think is the right answer. I'm going to say oatmeal raisin cookies. Okay, but w- can I put chocolate chips in them? Uh, no, no, I love chocolate, but I love, I also like, I like apple pie better than chocolate cake and I love chocolate, but I just, I, my dessert, I like sweets that aren't as sweet. I think that's what it is. I think that's why that's now I've never thought about the why before, but I like sweet. That's not like so sweet. So I can maybe have more of it, you know? Oh, see, I, you know, that's, you know, I'm, that is very, very acceptable answer. Um, very acceptable answer because you gave you the most analytical answer I could. <laughs> that's why I appreciate it because just as you can talk about really important things that have to do with ethics, I could talk about why um, it's better, why you prefer to eat it five oatmeal raisin cookies rather than I mean, one chocolate. Food is very important to me. I love food. I love to eat. Um, you know, watching my kids develop their different tastes is fascinating to me. So, um, I, but uh, I, but you gave me a very in-depth answer there. So, <laughs> so I, I, I have a, I have, I started out with a great deal of respect for you. I appreciate the conversations that we've had about very serious topics but I also appreciate the thought that you put into your dessert answer. And I thank I assume you. your answer is chocolate chips. Chocolate uh, chip no, I'm, um, I have created an oatmeal raisin cookie that has like spice and orange zest in it and, mm. and chocolate awesome. chips and ra- okay. and raisins. Okay. All right. So you put the chocolate chips. I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm softening on that mm-hmm. idea a little bit. And just, so. just, just if you will just keep your mind open a little bit. I will use dark chocolate chips, dark chocolate chips. And I like to cut down on the sweetness. So in your future, I hope to sway you to team oatmeal raisin chocolate chip. But in the meantime, I mean, you're doing a really incredible job. And I hope that what you're doing, especially as far as sexual assault and as far as making it better for people who are victims of crime, no matter what the crime um, making it easier for them to be able to come forth, not just in Westchester County, but as an example to um, counties across the United States, it would be, um, I, I hope that it spreads in such a fashion. So thanks for setting a good example. Thank you. Um, I will keep trying <laughs> for sure. Um, and thank you very much for being here today. And now I guess our dogs, we should feed them because they've been very patient. Yes. You should feed them. And thanks. It's been really fun talking with you. Definitely. Thank you very much for all that you do. And thanks for being here. Bye. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow Mimi Roca on Twitter, threads, and all sorts of social media that have probably popped up since the, you listen, started listening to this podcast recipes and links to everything you want and need can be found at marissarothkopf.substack.com. And if you are hanging around threads, please give a follow at Marissa Rothkopf Eats. That's right, Marissa Rothkopf Eats. That's all one word. Thanks. Have a great week. Thank you, Riley.